Hello, and welcome to Line One, Your Health Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. Alaska's elderly population is growing at a rapid rate while facing a range of challenges that can be distressing and physically impairing. While the most common ailments faced are heart disease and Alzheimer's dementia, these are followed closely by depression, which often goes undiagnosed. Last month, we began a discussion on how to meet our seniors where they are while with ongoing outpatient occupational therapy. Today, we will further discuss individualized and mobile services for the elderly. How can we better assist our elders with the range of physical and emotional changes they are facing? Joining us today to tell us just how to do this are our expert guests. We have Mr. Ken Youngberg, who is a licensed clinical social worker in Soldatna, with 26 years of experience addressing the mental health concerns of seniors while providing house calls. He understands the relationship between physical health and mental well-being. Also joining us is Dr. Ade Akindepe. She is a board-certified family nurse practitioner and founder of Aikens Mobile Health and Clinical Consultants, LLC, in Anchorage. She also makes house calls, benefiting seniors with limited mobility and or difficulty leaving their homes to seek care. Mr. Youngberg, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Dr. Akindepe, welcome. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. You can also join our conversation. Have you found it difficult to find a provider since you've enrolled in Medicare? Have you noticed a decline in your physical or mental health and need direction? Are you a caregiver for an elderly loved one and need support? Call us toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, and Anchorage at 907-550-8433, 907-550-8433, or email us at line1 at alaskapublic.com. Org. Mr. Youngberg, let's start with you and get to know you better. You've been practicing now in Soldatna for several years as a licensed clinical social worker. And a social worker can work in a variety of settings. When did you make the decision to work with the senior population and why? Well, uh, good morning. Uh, thank you. And I started... Um, Quite a few years ago, it really wasn't my decision to work with seniors, but I was working at a mental health clinic in Flagstaff, Arizona. And in the afternoon, I was working with behavior disordered children in an after-school program. And in the morning, I was assigned to go to the local nursing home and uh, start a counseling program for seniors. And so very interesting day when uh, at one point literally I had a 98-year-old client in the morning and I had an 8-year-old client in the afternoon. Um, and so that that practice continued until the, the clinic closed and I decided um, when the clinic closed to start my own private practice and I, I realized that 98-year-olds don't move as fast as 8-year-old children who are running away from you. And uh, so I found my population of seniors was was kind of the my calling growing up in a small uh, farming community in Iowa I, I learned to take care of seniors and had a grandmother lived uh, up the country road about a mile and so had a real uh, upbringing about uh, care and respect for the elderly 
That's great. Well, some grandparents can move very fast when they have to, when they're looking after youngsters. <laughs> and I love that you took care of children through adults. I That's something that I really like is being able to take care of everyone, right? So that's amazing. You have a degree in, uh, undergraduate degree in psychology and in social work, but are all social workers experienced in providing mental health care? No, it depends on the level of education. Uh, social work has, you know, a wide array of opportunities in different settings and specialties. Um, and, you know, social workers are employed in schools, hospitals, uh, outpatient services, nursing care facilities, and governmental agencies. Um, for uh, outpatient mental health therapy, though, you need to be a master's level uh, social worker, uh, and then you need supervised work experience, uh, about 3,000 hours of that, which usually takes a couple years, and then you have to sit for state boards to become a licensed clinical social worker, or LCSW as the lingo lingo goes, and then you can uh, sign up with insurance companies, including Medicare, which is what I specialize in. I only uh, treat Medicare patients and my focus of practice is limited to all seniors, which has been uh, 26 years of only working with seniors. So that's been my experience. And what services do you provide and in what settings at this, at this time? So I provide uh, outpatient mental health services. And uh, the unique thing about my practice is um, since I only work with seniors and I only take Medicare patients, uh, I have a very... Uh, you know, small niche of, of patients to work with. I, I provide counseling for seniors dealing with a plethora of issues, mainly depression, anxiety, um, grief, loss. Uh, I call it just the umbrella phrase, the challenges of aging, because there's always something that, that we can cover, we can talk with, and, and I can provide support. Uh, for seniors, which is a covered service under Medicare Part B, just like primary care is uh, covered service. Uh, my services are also covered under Medicare Part B. How are patients referred to you? Patients um, can self-refer. Um, I get referrals from physicians, other social workers in the community, other contacts I've networked. but. Uh, the nice thing is, because I'm an independent practitioner um, with Medicare, patients can self-refer or family members can call me up and, you know, request an evaluation and see if, if my services are appropriate. So there is no, uh, unlike home health care services, there is no uh, doctor's order required. Uh, I am an independent practitioner, so patients can contact me and we can uh, get the ball rolling from there. So they don't necessarily need to have a referral from a physician or primary care? No, they do not. They can just, uh, you know, contact me and, and I can uh, set up a time to do an evaluation and, and see what their needs are and see if uh, what I can provide would be appropriate. Well, thank you, Mr. Youngberg. We're going to come back to this. We're going to discuss mostly depression later on in the program because I think that is definitely very important to discuss the differences between depression in our older population and in perhaps a young adult. But let's learn a little bit more about Dr. Akindape at this time. Dr. Akindape is a nurse practitioner and nurse practitioners also work in a variety of settings and you make house calls as well. What was the inspiration for starting a mobile primary care service, um, servicing the senior population? 
Yeah, thank you. So glad to be here and be able to discuss a topic that's very close to me. Again, just like uh, Mr. Youngberg, I started kind of accidentally in uh, home health care. I started my career back in New York City where I was working in home health, very, very, uh, lots of population, gen uh, generally gen geriatrics that can't leave their home. So at that time, I was a nurse. Um, that's where I got to really figure out that there were gaps in healthcare where patients that are you know, marginalized or just don't have that access end up falling through the cracks and they end up back in the hospital. I got to realize that more as a nurse practitioner where I became a nurse practitioner in wound care, working in skilled nursing facilities, um, and that's where I saw more of the revolving door in healthcare, where patients just end up back because they're not getting that continuity of care. So I, I thought about, you know, what it, what is it that causes these patients to come back? And really, it's just that lack of continuity. So that led me to start the house call practice two years ago in Anchorage. And most of my patients, just like, like Mr. Youngberg, um, are... Um, you know, homebound, they have difficulty leaving the home. They have a lot of psychological, primary, uh, multiple medical conditions as well. So um, when I started that, I, you know, it, it's really hard where, in, especially a place like Anchorage, where not all the resources are available, uh, but you work with what you have. But most of my patients, again, have, you know, diabetes, hypertension, mental health disorders. Um, so what the goal was for this practice was to meet the patients where they are, whether they're in skilled nursing facilities, whether they're in assisted living homes or just at home, um, really helping the family members to care for their loved one. And most of my patients are 65 and above on Medicare. I would say probably about 95% of my patients are on Medicare. Um, we do accept other insurances, and we also have um, patients on Medicaid. So um, the goal is to provide that transitional care from the hospital, from skilled nursing facilities, um, to bring them home so that they can be successful and live at home. You've touched on something so important, and that is continuity and how continuity of care is keeping people out of the hospital. And, of course, that's the goal, to live uh, a healthy life at home where you are. So I see that this service can be so useful to really all ages because I see that same problem in a younger population in middle-aged adults as well, dealing with multiple chronic medical conditions. Now that you can save the whole world, but you're 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 starting it, both of you, by taking this vulnerable population and and caring for them. But I just see some of the things that you're doing can really translate well to everyone if we have more more assistance. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yes. Well, Dr. Akindabe, can you tell me about the difference between home-based primary care and home health? How is that different? Sure, sure. So home health, uh, where you have uh, different kinds of specialties, um, including physical therapy, uh, a home health nurse. Sometimes there are social workers on staff as well. These uh, different specialties can see the patient at home, usually after a hospitalization or if there's an um, maybe an acute issue for patients that are home limited. And most of those services are covered um, under Medicare Part A. So, um, you know, uh, this they have to have a referral from uh, a physician or an advanced practice provider telling that provider to go in, and, and maybe it's for wound care, maybe it's for physical therapy, and they're allotted a short amount of time for that skilled service. Again, it has to be a skilled service. Once there is no need for that service, uh, that patient is essentially discharged from that care, and um, they follow up with their primary care provider. 
With home-based primary care, it is um, there is continuity, so there is no stopping it. It's like you essentially going to the doctor's office and saying, here I am, I need my annual. So instead of you going to the doctor's office, we come to you. So it is covered by Medicare Part B instead of Part A. Um, it covers annual visits. It covers diabetes checks, um, uh, vaccinations, that kind of thing. So those are the two differences. This is very important for us to remember, and we touched on this last month when we talked to the occupational therapists, because I think there is some confusion to that limited care that you get when you leave a hospital versus what all um, four of these providers are doing, which is providing that continuity, whether that's with occupational therapy, like our last guest, mental health with Mr. Youngberg, primary care with Dr. Kindipe. This is ongoing continuity. So very important to know. And I don't know uh, that many people know of these services being available to them and may just assume that it's short-term care to get them back on their feet. Absolutely. Well, what services do patients have access to when they're enrolled in home-based primary care with you, doctor? So that's a really great question. So there's a lot of services that actually may not be accessible to a patient when they're in a freestanding or your traditional clinic setting. Um, Number one, um, when you are in the home setting, it's great to be able to see some of those social determinants of health that really affect the patient. So, you know, you know, seeing if they have access to food, healthy food, or, you know, what does their home look like? What is the safety in that home? Those are the things that really impact the patient's care and, and, and make them end up back in the hospital. Also, um, my practice focuses a lot on chronic disease management or chronic care management. This is something that is covered by Medicare Part B, where the patient gets extra help. So what does that mean? It means the provider or a nurse actually it calls the patient and checks up on them. So there is a, um, instead of a reactive, it's more proactive care. So we're reaching out to the patient ahead of time, making sure that they fill their medications. The patients call us and say, hey, my legs are most more swollen today. We can increase your diuretics, making sure that you're not flu- you know, in fluid retention and end up being in the hospital for heart failure, for example. So those are the so- kinds of things we try to implement. We also implement remote patient monitoring. So if a patient has diabetes, for example, we can start them on... Um, blood sugar monitoring. So you can see real time how the patient is doing with their blood sugar. So we start to see that trend up, we can intervene quickly and try to get those blood sugars more under control. So those are really excellent services that are uh, available in this practice. Are you seeing less people have to go back to the hospital who are under your care? Absolutely. So, um, you know, we have patients that, especially after that hospitalization, um, we have seen a decline in that. And it's really, really important to be able to track a lot of these um, great, you know, things, the, the effects, because eventually I'm sure you're hearing a lot about value-based care, value-based care. We need to be able to show the impact of these programs so that insurance companies can um, cover these beneficiaries because they are the ones that are benefiting from this. Right. Well, how do uh, patients get enrolled to see you? What do they need to do? Great. So um, most of us, most of the times we get referrals from the hospitals, from case managers, Sometimes even primary care providers in a traditional setting will say, hey, you know, we haven't seen so-and-so in a year. Um, and we think it's probably because of mobility issues. They're getting sicker. We would want you to take over their care. So primary care, even patients can self-refer. And you are seeing patients in their home as well. So maybe that is 
somewhat why some of the other providers may refer to you, but do you have more time to spend with them than somebody who's seeing them in the office? Absolutely. That's a great point. So that's one thing that's uh, great about home-based primary care. You have the ability to see a patient and spend more time. In this setting, you know, you don't have the ability to see 20 patients a day because you, you can't drive to 20 patients' houses. But you have the time to spend with the patient and family. Um, a lot of the times, the family is the one taking care of the patient. You know, if you have a patient with dementia, um, you need time to really educate the family on how to care for their, their family member. Yes, that's true. Education is a big part of what all of us do, right? We spend a lot Absolutely. of time teaching. What are some of the challenges that you've seen in providing mobile health care? Mr. Youngberg, let's start with you. Um, well, my model has always been mobile health care. Um, my patients would not receive services if I wasn't able to go see them. So for 26 years, ever since I started my practice, I've never had an office. Um, I've always done uh, in-home or in-facility appointments. If you live in your own home still or apartment, assisted living facility or nursing home, uh, I come to you. And so my, my vehicle is my traveling office. I eat at least two meals a day in there and, and carry my paperwork with me and, and make my rounds. Um, it's that's always been my model of operation. I, I love what Dr. Kindepe is, is doing. I'm going to ask her if she's going to have one of those uh, mobile clinics down on the peninsula. It would be great. I have numerous patients uh, who could benefit from such service, and I, I hope to see more of that, that type of service because it's absolutely needed and, and uh, it's, it's vital for patients who are homebound and cannot get out. So, uh, if I if I don't go see them, they just don't get the care. They're too chronically ill. You're depressed. You no longer drive. Uh, you don't feel like leaving the house. And so, it's it's uh, the service that I provide and Dr. Kinnape is, is invaluable for those people who are falling through the cracks. Thank you, Dr. Kinnape. What challenges have you noticed in this model? Sure, um, I would say. Um, one of the biggest challenges I have is the lack of uh, the ability to really communicate among different providers. Uh, it's, you know, you have different electronic medical records that don't talk to each other. So when you have a patient that you maybe haven't seen in a month, and a lot can happen in a month. So if there's no um, infrastructure or communication, it's hard to really know what's going on with patients. So that can be challenging. Imagine seeing a patient one month ago, they were just fine. And then a month later, when you see them, you realize, oh, they've been to the hospital. They've had a lot going on with them. So um, that um, infrastructure, that communication system is talking to each other. The other challenge I have is um, the, you know, mobile technology. I don't think it's really here yet. You know, you hear about mobile x-rays and mobile labs and, you know, lower 48 there's no such thing as that. If you want to diagnose somebody with pneumonia or things like that, you can't really, you kind of have to use your own clinical judgment to make medical decisions. Right. That's interesting you bring that up because I do know in the lower 48, my family has had phlebotomists come to their home to draw right. blood and then they take care of sending it back. And I thought that was amazing and Absolutely. that could be you know, revolutionary. Um with mobile x-ray, you know, I've seen things like this on television. Mm -hmm. And yes, that would definitely be a game changer if you could 
meet them at their sure. home with all of these <laughs> devices and <clears throat> investigation. Right, right. So that can be challenging. You know, as a provider, you're essentially the mobile tech. You're the x-ray tech. You're the uh, phlebotomist. So that challenge, that extra time that cost to you to draw the lab, send it to the lab, um, can be challenging. So, Right, absolutely. Well, this service, though, is certainly a game changer. Do you know of other people that are doing similar things? Dr. Or Mr. Youngberg, you said that you would like to have a mobile primary care in Soldatna. Are there other mobile health providers there that you know of? Um, in my specialty, no. Um, I'm not aware of, of any other mobile uh, providers, but I'm definitely interested in, in uh, hearing expansion plans from Dr. Kindepay down here. I've got several referrals for her already. I think that'd be a great service. Well, I know Dr. Akindape is an entrepreneur, so <laughs> that's, a may, very, that's a very interesting she may be up for it. <laughs> idea. <laughs> we can convince her. <laughs> I think another important thing um, that Dr. Akindape brought up is the medical record systems. And I think that's something that people really may not be aware of is that all of these systems do not talk. And I think when you go to a provider and everything is, you know, written down in the computer and you're given digital copies and you have a portal, of course, you would assume that if you've been to the hospital and they're doing the same thing, that your primary or specialist would have that information. And it's not true. And it's so frustrating for the patient and also for providers that we just do not have that ability at this time because there's so many different medical record systems. So... You know, that may be another way that we need to find someone to step in to do a universal system. Right. But of course, you know, each company makes money from their medical record system. So that would be a very difficult challenge Absolutely. To, to do. Well, I definitely want to get more into the actual um, illnesses and the types of patients that you see, but we have to take a short break. You are listening to Line One, Your Health Connection. If you have a question or comment for our guests today, give us a call statewide at 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, or in Anchorage at 907-550-8433. After this short break, we will continue our discussion of accessibility and the dimensions of elderly health care with Mr. Youngberg and Dr. Akindepe as Line 1 continues statewide. You're listening to Line 1 from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line 1 on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. People who smoke or have smoking-related conditions like lung and heart disease are more likely to get seriously ill from COVID-19. Not using any tobacco or e-cigarette products is one of the best ways to keep your immune system strong ready to fight all kinds of viruses. If you decide to quit, help is available. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or text READY to 200-400 to get the support you need to quit for good. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line.
Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. I'm joined by guest Mr. Ken Youngberg, who has a unique practice in Soldatna, providing mental health services to seniors and other Medicare Part B recipients. He earned undergraduate degrees in psychology and social work, as well as a master's of social work from the University of Iowa. Also joining us is Dr. Ade Akindepe. She is a board-certified family nurse practitioner who earned her doctorate in nursing and a master's in business administration from Johns Hopkins University and dedicates her expertise to providing primary care to seniors living in and near Anchorage. Have you been affected by mobility issues as you age? Are you finding it difficult to manage multiple chronic conditions as you age? Call us toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, in Anchorage at 907-550-8433, 907-550-8433, or email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. So we talked about some of the challenges that you may be experiencing. Are there any challenges to the payments um, with Medicare for these home-based services? Mr. Youngberg? Uh, No, mine is pretty straightforward. Medicare uh, covers 80% of the uh, cost of the allowed amount. And if you have a supplemental plan, they pick up the other 20%. um, which is great. I'd also like to suggest a different model of payment to Medicare is the amount of money that I uh, and certainly Dr. Kindepay save the Medicare system by by helping patients before they they get hospitalized. I think if we could earn a percentage of that, it'd be much more lucrative if they can figure out a way to to do that. That would be my suggestion because keeping patients healthy and at home, uh, of course, saves a lot of money for hospitalizations, nursing home placements. And so my tongue-in-cheek answer is um, I'd like to work on a percentage of, of how much money I'd actually save them. Absolutely. Well, I know I found it difficult to find primary care providers that are accepting Medicare patients Uh, in this state. So why, uh, Dr. Akindepe, do you think it's difficult to find primary care providers for the Medicare patients? Well, um, just like Mr. Youngberg said, you know, um, reimbursement sometimes can be a challenge. I mean, you know, like he said, 80% is covered by Medicare and the rest is covered by supplemental. Um, But I found, number one, that primary care access um, in this state is, 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 from what I can tell anyway, lots of providers are retiring, Um, Also, there's a lot of competition out there. You know, if you look at, you know, all these other services out there like Teladoc, people just want immediate access. They can just jump on the computer and get what they need. So that can be a little bit competitive. But I think at the end of the day, I think really, uh, like Mr. Youngberg said, is providers want to be incentivized for the work that they're doing. We provide value for these patients, keeping them out of the hospital. So if payers understand the importance of, you know, providing that um, incentive to keep providers wanting to take care of Medicare patients because it is a lot of work. And um, the more patients you see, um, you know, burnout is real. You know, you want to make sure you give the patients the best, but also the providers really need to be incentivized for the work that they do. How many patients are you able to see in a day? What is a full day for you? 
So a full day for me um, to be able to take care of patients and have the time, the max amount of I could probably see is about eight patients a day. Uh, reason why is, number one, the driving time. You need to allow time for driving, allow time for, you know, elderly. They move a little bit slower than, you know, the rest of the population, so you need to give that time. Also, to mitigate that um, less time, what we've tried to do is implement virtual visits as well to see patients for acute conditions um, that don't necessarily need to be seen in person. Sometimes it's behavioral issues, um, you know, related to their underlying medical conditions that they can be addressed remotely, like Mr. Youngberg does, uh, has also helped increase that volume that we see. Excellent. So there is the opportunity for virtual visits. Absolutely, yes. Mr. Youngberg, have you been doing virtual visits as well? Only when necessary. Um, I I prefer, and I think most therapists prefer, face-to-face sessions just because, you know, you're in the patient's home, as Dr. Akindabe said earlier, you get to see their real reality, and, and that gives you a lot of information that is not obtainable in, in to traditional primary care settings. So I get to see these people, how they live, how they struggle. Um, I typically see about four patients a day. There is driving time, and most of my appointments are hour-long sessions. So uh, I do try not to, to burn out and treat only four or five uh, folks a day, but there is driving time and, and other considerations. Yes, I did hear that from talking to other mental health providers, especially during the pandemic, when they were reaching uh, patients virtually, that it was actually quite difficult for them to provide care, to provide their full spectrum of care when they weren't face-to-face. Whereas I think it was a little easier perhaps to pivot when you know, you're talking about a sore throat or, or something like that that you could really talk through. You really needed that face-to-face connection as a mental health provider. Well, Mr. Youngberg, I imagine that patients present with a multitude of physical health challenges. Do you find that mental health has been addressed in these patients and um, have mental health diagnoses been uncovered in the patients when you first see them? Oftentimes, yes, and sometimes no. Um, you know, when, you, when you're dealing with a patient with a lot of chronic health problems, um, you know, primary care has to, has to put out the biggest fires first. And so oftentimes mental health is, is you know, far down the list, unfortunately. And due to time constraints, um, my elderly patients, they really value providers who, you know, they, they feel that they, they care about them. So oftentimes providers just don't have the time to get to the deeper issues and, and to listen. And I hear so many times from seniors that the, the amount of care they feel they're receiving from the provider determines even if they will uh, take medications for, you know, high blood pressure and things like that. Um, and I see a real connection. And so, unfortunately, sometimes mental health uh, does not get addressed. And, and, you know, personally, I think you need a social worker uh, in the room with primary care that, you know, once the business of primary care is done, the social worker could sit and ask a few uh, questions and really do uh, a deep assessment of, of their needs because there's such a connection between uh, your emotional health and, and taking care of yourself physically. Well, that's a very interesting, well-rounded model to have all of your allied professionals together 
kind of like a, a, a group and not a group of patients, an individual patient being able to reach a variety of providers. That's profound. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's a, actually what makes the model of home-based primary care successful. It takes a village, really, because um, there's no, we, you, cannot, you cannot take care of a patient in a silo. That's why services like Mr. Youngberg's is so important, uh, home health. In fact, we have a really great relationship with a lot of the home um, home health agencies. You know, once we see signs of deterioration of a wound, for example, or a blood sugar, we can get a nurse in there to start to educate the family about, you know, what kinds of foods to stay away from, healthier, um, you know, activity, increasing activity. Um, another thing is also reaching out to the specialists out there. You know, after seeing a patient, um, you need to also think about, okay, what, what is the next step for this patient? Get the note to the cardiologist and let them know, you know, this is what's going on. I'm seeing fluid retention or I'm seeing elevated blood pressure. You may want to see this patient earlier. So it really it takes all of us talking to each other so that this patient doesn't fall through the cracks. So you're able to work alongside other providers and uh, healthcare providers that can also perhaps come out to the house? Absolutely. In fact, um, I was really thrilled to see, you know, more services like occupational therapy and physical therapy. There's a couple of people that started the practice within the last year. And I don't know if this was all born out of the pandemic. Maybe this is one of those things, that, the silver lining of the pandemic, providers coming out and going into the uh, the homes. Um, and again, they're all covered under medical Medicare Part B. So if you need physical therapy, and then you can actually do this for much longer rather than that short time that home health uh, uh, gives. Thank you. Well, Mr. Youngberg, can you talk to us a little bit more about how addressing these mental health ailments can contribute to improving overall health, physical health? You mentioned how uh, the mental health or their relationship with the provider can affect how or whether patients take medications that they've been prescribed. What are some of the other ways that the mental health can affect the physical health? I think a lot of, you know, just encouragement is needed. Um, when you have a, a chronic health condition that you've been dealing with for years, it becomes overwhelming. And so, you know, I provide a lot of uh, support, uh, empathy, and, you know, problem solving with uh, folks who uh, have have received a diagnosis maybe of of cancer, for example, and, and they just are so overwhelmed with the emotional challenges of that, that the idea of getting treatment, they just they can't even get to that point. So try to remove some of the roadblocks uh, to help them you know, access better care. Um, just a lot of um, problem solving and encouragement, like I said, is, is really crucial um, because they're, they're having to, to deal with so many different you know, providers and specialists and, and the, ever, the information is overwhelming, the diagnosis, you know, uh, people being in denial of having issues such as Parkinson's or cancer, things like that. So I find myself, you know, doing a lot of education and support uh, just to, to help them. You know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a two-way street, you know, their, their physical health, their emotional health, both of those things need to be uh, taken into consideration. So, Yes. Well, I don't think we often think about our elderly population suffering from depression you know, we think about all of these other physical ailments, but we don't necessarily think that this person may be suffering uh, and needing help with mental health as well. 
are there differences between the signs and symptoms we notice in an elderly person with depression versus a young adult with depression? Yes, and, and there's there's you know certainly overlap with the system uh, with the symptoms for uh, geriatric depression is actually a geriatric depression scale, which is a fifteen item questionnaire which really focuses on the differences in the way depression is presented uh, from a senior's point of view. Oftentimes there's more somatic complaints. There might be backaches, headaches, stomach aches. And I've had patients say, you know, I've been to, I've been to multiple uh, providers and specialists and we just can't find the root cause of this, this ongoing pain. And so uh, sometimes it's easier for the, the somatic complaints, um, you know, these, these, pain symptoms that are have not been uh, successful in being treated and and oftentimes it's an emotional component grief loss things like that so the the presentation is certainly different with seniors not to mention the stigma it's easier to say you know i have some aches and pains than than a younger person who you know with with the improvement of, of the stigma and depression they're they're more willing to say yeah depression is something we need to address but uh, when I first started uh, my practice uh, many years ago, the the stigma was was very high with with seniors, and so you you really have to address it differently uh, when you're looking at symptoms because it does present differently. Um, feelings of worthlessness, hopelessness, aches and pains, things like that um, can be uh, more uh, challenging with seniors. Yes, well, you know, even now that stigma exists, you know, there's a lot of, of talk and attention on mental health. But in young adults, I feel mostly, you know, that's what you're seeing on social media and on television, really encouraging young adults to uh, take control of their mental health as well as their physical health. And I don't know that there's a lot of outreach into uh, this space with our elders. There's, re- there's really not, and, you know, depression um, in the elderly is frequently confused with other effects of, you know, multiple illnesses and medicines that use that are used to treat them. Um, and, you know, these, these other uh, comorbidities with other medical illnesses and disabilities, um, and oftentimes the advancing age, you know, we and lot, lack of social support um, due to the death of a spouse, siblings, retirement, relocation residents, um so sometimes you have to really be listening and and try to ferret out that someone a senior is telling you they're they're depressed and you really have to get to the root of the the matter there uh sometimes these signs can be missed like i said because you know you don't have the time to sit down and and really delve into their history uh, so a lot of times seniors will find uh, they're trying to cope with symptoms that could have been easily treated but if if they're not identified um and secondly, if they have a stigma about mental health, uh, that becomes a hurdle to treatment. Um, so that's what I've noticed in my practice. Thank you. Yeah, you've uncovered some of these barriers to diagnoses. And do you think education for primary care providers would be helpful? Maybe does, do they have access to these screening tools, this geriatric screening tool that you mentioned? And just reminders about you know, how to identify depression and these different signs that they may appreciate? I think education is, is certainly always the answer. Um, but, you know, in, in, my, in my fantasy world, I think with, along with, you know, when I 
go to the doctor, you you have a medical assistant comes in, takes your blood pressure, and and you know gets everything ready for the appointment. Uh, that's why I'd like to see uh, a, a social worker also get a, a few minutes as just a, a crack at the patient and say, uh, here's here's you know what I do. I when I lived in Arizona, I was actually had an office in a cardiology practice, which was. Uh, kind of unheard at that time, but we did what was called a warm handoff. And if if there was if the cardiologist uh, sensed that there was uh, some emotional issues with the patient, they would actually uh, grab me from my office, and I would I would go in after the appointment and, and talk with the person and really try to give them a, a face and and say here's here's what you you might be dealing with, and here's here I am, you know, hey. Just a, uh, it's it's sort of different referral than handing someone a card and saying you know speak to a counselor. But when when someone's in front of you and has the skills to be able to connect with the patient, I think that's ultimately what would be really helpful is to to uh, have a social worker as as part of the team in in all kinds of healthcare settings. I love that. That probably helps the efficiency of the office as well. And the patients appreciate having someone that knows all of the intricacies of what their plan is. Well, we actually have a caller. We've got Judy from Anchorage who has a question about medications for seniors. Hi, Judy. Welcome to Line One. Hello. Um, I'm just enjoying everything that I'm hearing today. Um, but I did have a question, and this is regarding what I have observed with the senior population, and that is sometimes they have confusion with their medication. So I was just wondering, like, when you do your home visits, is that one of the things that you assist them with, um, help them? Because I know that sometimes the prescriptions can change and the pills look alike and they get confused. So I was just wondering, you know, is that something that you all assist with as well? Oh, that's a great, great question, Ms. Judy. Thank you. Let's go to Dr. Kindepay. That is a very, very great question. In fact, that I think is probably the bread and butter of home-based primary care. Um, when patients leave the hospital or they're, uh, you know, finish their 15-minute appointment in a doctor's office, sometimes there's just so much thrown at us, right? You, we're not really sure what does this mean. So one of the biggest thing we do is we go into the home, and one of the first things we do is called medication reconciliation, where we go through all the medications figure out why are you taking this medication? And we not only just do that, we also educate the patient. You're taking this medication for your blood pressure. I can't recall how many times I'll go into a patient's home and they're on two medications for the same thing. Um, this can also obviously lead to a lot of adverse effects for the patient um, and even in the, in the hospital. So we go through step-by-step step each medication, uh, figure out what they, what they are taking it for and if it's needed. Um, you know, there are pain medications on there. Do you still need this medication? Maybe you've been taking this medication for two years, so you still need to be on them. So one of the things we also do is try to see if we can de reduce the amount of medications that you don't need. That way you can be more compliant. Nobody really wants to take 20 medications at a time if you don't absolutely necessarily need to have it. So yes, that is uh, one of the things that we do in home-based primary care. Thank you. Yes, that's something I've noticed uh, in practices now we have, I know in my medical record system, it pulls in pharmacy data. We don't know if that's 100% complete, but it's really nice to be able to go through the medications that they may have gotten at any pharmacy in Alaska 
and be able to see medications that may interact with another medication or something they didn't know they were supposed to be taken but had been recently prescribed to them and they hadn't picked it up. So that would be a wonderful thing to be able to have that for all patients. And sadly, I think time is a barrier to this. You have such limited time in a doctor's office to, you know, figure out what are your your issues at that time and then figure out where you need to go for this, that, and the other treatment. But yes, this is so significant and important. And I wonder, Dr. Akindepe, if you have other family members come in to hear that conversation because perhaps that um, elder in the home may have some memory issues Maybe we need to bring some other family members that can be responsible for that. That is a great point. In fact, it's highly encouraged, especially during the first visit, to have either the you know the family member or someone that is very close to this patient to uh, really understand the medications. Because if we are um, you know prescribing all these medications and the family can't help understand it. Uh, again, it, it, it reduces the barrier still. The barrier is still there. It's part of that social determinant of health. Right. Another thing to think about are different systems and pharmacies where you can get your medication where they will all be laid out for you. So there are different pharmacies where you can have your prescriptions filled at the same time and they're separated into packages that will tell you, take this in the morning at a specific time, take this in the afternoon, take this in the evening. So it cuts down on that patient needing to separate their pills into their pill packs. I know that Amazon Pharmacy does this where it will send you a dispenser. The dates and the times are on the medications. And all you have to do is rip the package off and take the medicine in that package at the specific time. So that can really help with families that may be limited in the care that they give. I'm sure there's other um, pharmacies that do similar things. Um, But of course, all of this takes time and it doesn't help as much if there's medications you shouldn't be taking still. So that's definitely something that would need to be addressed. We're going to talk a little more, but we have to take our last break. So we're going to take another short break for the stations down the line. If you have a question or comment for our guests today, give us a call statewide at 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, or in Anchorage at 907-550-8433. We'll continue our discussion on mental and physical health for our elderly population when we return. You're listening to Line One, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strong Hearts Native Helpline is a free 24-7 confidential and anonymous domestic dating, and sexual violence helpline for Alaska Natives. Help is available by calling or texting 1-844-7-NATIVE or using the chat icon at strongheartshelpline.org. This message is sponsored by the Strong Hearts Native Helpline. Welcome back to Line One. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. Our guests today are Mr. Ken Youngberg, a licensed clinical social worker from Soldatna, and Dr. Ade Kindepe, a board-certified family nurse practitioner in Anchorage. 
both have a special interest in our elderly population, providing at-home health care. Dr. Akindepe is the owner of Aikens Mobile Health and Clinical Consultants, LLC. She previously worked as a nurse in home health care and saw a need that she could fill. You could also join our conversation. Are you aware of the danger signs of depression? Do you need assistance managing several chronic, chronic conditions? Call us toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, in Anchorage at 907-550-8433, 907-550-8433, or email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. Dr. Akindepe, I want to talk to you about the types of patients that you come across in Anchorage. What do you most commonly see? Yeah, great question. So um, first, a lot of our patients tend to live in assisted living facilities, um, and we have quite a few um, of them here in Anchorage. Um, the conditions we see can range uh, from, you know, just uh, Alzheimer's, a dementia, um, diabetes, hypertension, or a combination of many. Um, the, what uh, I would say we commonly come across is a lot of behavioral issues where um, that kind of overshadows everything else that's going on with the patient. So um, the challenge, though, I feel in, in Anchorage that we don't really have is that quick access to mental health care, which is why Mr. Youngberg's work is super, super important. And I wish we had more of him here <laughs> because um, so a lot of the piece that we try to help, um, especially those assisted living facilities, is to try to understand the patient that, you know, why is the patient agitated, right? Um, sometimes it's not about increasing their medication. What other things could be going on with this patient that might make them agitated? Is it pain? Is it depression? Um, some of those things can be manifested in different ways. So part of what we do is we do an environmental assessment. Um, we do a physical assessment. Um, I, have a, I had a patient one day uh, that was really agitated, just going from room to room, really upset. After doing a physical exam, you know, she had uh, you know, something lodged in her ear that was causing oh, her yeah. significant pain. And after we figured that out, the patient was back to her baseline. So these are the things that we try to educate um, caregivers, you know, in these these uh, living, assisted living facilities to, you know, just, you know, take your time. Don't, you know, assume this patient is just, you know, they just have dementia and they're just being, you know, you know, somebody with dementia. Try to understand the patient or better yet, figure out what is it that they used to do before they had this condition. You'd be amazed about how much that can really impact the patient. Do they like to paint? Were they a reader? You know, what did they do that made them who they were? And I found that that has had a significant impact on some patients. So educating them, really talking to the family as well, and um, getting a, a really good social psychosocial assessment is key. So it sounds like uh, Mr. Youngberg will be coming here to Anchorage, and Dr. Akindepe will be going to Soldatna, and you'll be working together and taking care <laughs> of the seniors. I, I like that a lot. And I see that these things, they really go hand in hand. You can't treat one without treating the other is what I'm right. learning here. Right. Another interesting um, fact that I heard last time is that for adults over 45, 
if you are suffering from two or more chronic medical conditions, so let's say high blood pressure and diabetes, you are at significantly increased risk of developing dementia, lower cognitive abilities. And that's really scary to think about. Absolutely. You know, we're thinking about, you know, seniors, 65 and older, you know, you could be suffering from cognitive decline much earlier than yeah. that. Yes, absolutely. Um, we're starting to see it actually in younger population. I'm sure Ms. Youngberg probably knows more about this, but um, I do have patients younger that not necessarily Medicare, but have had a significant decline either because they've had longstanding hypertension or diabetes or high cholesterol that can cause you know, vascular dementia. So if those problems are not addressed at a younger age, definitely can um, impact their, their mental health. Absolutely, health. Well, we have another caller, so I'd like to welcome Melanie from Anchorage to line one. Hello. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I just had a comment, and I missed the very beginning of your show, so you may have already um, mentioned this, but um, I work as a home health physical therapist and for most of my career, and um, my last position was actually, which I haven't been in for five years now, but was actually at the VA, and I just have to put kudos in for their program. I know the VA gets a lot of bad press, but I worked in home-based primary care there, and the VA has had that system for um, more than 25 years, and having gone from, you know, the traditional Medicare or system in home health, I was just amazed by how effective this program was. We had a doctor, a nurse, a psychiatrist, MSW, um, pharmacist, dietitian, and then me, uh, PT, all on a team that we would see people in their home. And it, I mean, I'm sure they have the data that showed that by seeing these people that didn't come in, we saved um, the VA a lot of money because these are people who cycle through the emergency room, who hospital stays. I saw people who, you know, were really considered terminal um, come back because they were just so poorly managed because they weren't coming in for appointments. And um, seeing people in their home and really seeing how they live and really what's going on and seeing their medicines that they have, it's just it's just such a amazing way to see people, how they really live, especially the geriatric population. Our population wasn't all geriatric, but Mostly, and it was also, um, you know, people with chronic illness. But um, well, thank it's a you, great model. Yes, thank you, Melanie, for sharing that. That's so great to hear about this really team-based care approach that has been enacted in other in at the VA. So that's really nice for us to hear that this can work. We just have to figure out how this can be implemented, you know, in the in the real world, I guess, outside of the VA. Sure. How can we how can we implement this sort of program? And now we've heard about you doing uh, home based physical therapy, which Dr. Kindapace um, spoke about. That there were people here that do that, but now forming a network together uh, and taking care of the patients together—that's probably the next level. Absolutely. And I think that's a great point that she brought up. Actually, the VA-based care is the model. That's actually, I think, um, we follow their data, I would say. There's a lot of um, 
we actually benchmark against this VA system because that's what has been proven to work. And there are a lot of programs in the lower 48 that um, have done really, really great work and shown how much we can reduce the cost of care for the beneficiaries as well as, you know, um, improve quality of care. So I would say um, it is definitely doable. Um, again, it when it comes to us really working together, it means, you know, putting the infrastructures that are going to be talking to each other, understanding that the patient really is at the at the center of our so patient center of care, patient centered care, right? Um, how do we work with home health? How do we work with the hospitals, the discharge planners to really understand what home based primary care is? So there's still a lot of education about it. We still get calls to say, hey, I want to you know enroll in home health. And we're like, well, that's not what we do, but we can help you in this other way. So a lot of education for physicians, um, other specialties out there to understand what we really do is important. And I guess knowing about the services that are available to the seniors and where to go, you know, there are senior centers that have, for the, for those that are living in their home, senior centers that have a lot of information, churches that do have a lot of information for the elderly. Are there other places that people should look to see what's available to know where you yeah, are? Absolutely. So um, we've worked a lot with um, different communities. We've worked with, you know, places like Hospice of Anchorage. Uh, palliative care. In fact, I think that is uh, one of the places that I feel uh, really could benefit from our service because um, a lot of patients that really should not be going in and out, maybe, you know, they've got goals of care that are very clear that they don't want all of this stuff done to them. So um, one of the things we try to do is help patients understand that we can deliver some of that care in the home, whether it's palliative care or hospice care. So even though we don't necessarily do hospice care, we can see the signs, have that discussion with family members and say, hey, these are your options. And if they do choose hospice, we can refer early in the process rather than them dying in the hospital. It can happen at home where they choose to. So that's one of the biggest things I think I love about home-based primary care. Thank you. And Mr. Youngberg, let me give you a moment to share your final thoughts. Well, I like the idea of Dr. Akindapay uh, franchising and, and coming down here. Um, I'm wondering what length of RV we'd be traveling in. <laughs> I think uh, a mobile, I, I envision it kind of like a, a mobile SWAT team uh, in a comfortable RV with, with all the... That would be awesome. <laughs> ...and a nice couch uh, for the social worker to sit on. So I like the idea. Let's talk offline about that. Well, thank you so much to both of you. Thanks to our guests, Mr. Ken Youngberg and Dr. Adea Kindepe for being with us today. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tobin Shelby, and our producer, Adeline Baxter. You can find more information on this and previous programs on our website at alaskapublic.org. Let us know your thoughts or suggestions by emailing us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. This has been Line One, your health connection. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. Thank you. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the host and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.